Hi, friends. Maya here again. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the segment we call Doctor in the House. Today, you're going to hear some of the highlights, some of the insights as to what Dr. Riz comes on the show to share about. And just in case you're not familiar with Dr. Riz, he is my husband. He's a vascular surgeon here in the Dallas area. He's been practicing now, gosh, probably over close to 30 years. And he has a vascular practice, but he also services two hospitals in the Mesquite area in Sunnyvale. And so our goal with having this segment of Doctor in the House is to give you nuggets, sound bites, important tips that you can do to take control of your health. As always, my friends, I thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that you enjoy this segment. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast, and I'm your host, Maya Acosta. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life and increase our longevity in a good way. Let's get started. Uh, So I am a uh, first-generation American. Uh, My parents came over in the 60s. My dad was also a a vascular surgeon. He's passed away a few years ago. Uh, But he had come over to do his uh, training in surgery. And uh, so I, I was born here in as a first generation American, there's often these expectations that you're going to excel or, or and the son of a doctor, you're going to become a doctor. So there was always this kind of thing in the background as I was growing up. Uh, and, you know, I was a pretty studious kid as, uh, uh, and, you know, did well in school. And uh, so even by the time I got to college, there was this kind of this expectation. Now, funny enough, uh, I got to college, uh, university around the time that computers were starting to become a big deal back in the late 80s. Uh, uh, Apple computer was there, the uh, PC was there, and I had a strong interest in computers. So I kind of thumbed, you know, my, uh, uh, thumbed my dad by saying, "Hey, no, I'm not going to be pre-med. I'm going to go uh, computer science." And so I was computer science major for about a semester uh, before I, you know, really dis- did decide that uh, I, I didn't want to go into medicine. So I became a pre-med guy, and uh, and uh, later on, later on in college, and then uh, went on from there. And it was always this kind of thing where. Uh, yeah, I guess I am my father's son. There's some characteristics of a surgeon. You know, I'm pretty obsessive compulsive, which is good, you know, uh, when you, if you want to be a surgeon. And, uh, and uh, I enjoyed the, the concept of where if I did something, it made a difference immediately. Uh, mm-hmm. Surgeons kind of enjoy that, cutting out disease or fixing something. Mm-hmm. And so I enjoyed that concept. So I did I naturally evolve into surgery. And then, then the next natural step was to follow in my father's footsteps. And I became a vascular surgeon. And then I came back to Dallas. Uh, this is where da- my dad had done his vascular surgery training. Uh, and this is where he had settled down. And so I came back to Dallas in the late 90s and joined him. The pathway to uh, a specialist is you have to do general surgery first. So I did five years of general surgery. And, and if you want to, uh, yeah, if you want to specialize, it's pretty competitive and, and you have to do well. Uh, it, it, and that's kind of the way it is at every step of the game is if you want to go to the next step, you have to continue doing well. Uh, so then I did a two-year fellowship in vascular surgery. Uh, and, and so seven years. Uh, so I, you know, the med- uh, my medical education was uh, four years of med school, five years of general surgery, and two years of vascular. Back when I did vascular, there was a one-year fellowship and a two-year fellowship. And the one-year fellowship was a more straightforward, just a surgical fellowship. And so when you, when you finished uh, as a vascular surgeon, you just had those that skill set to operate, um, and I chose to go to one of the few places in the country that was a two-year fellowship because mm-hmm. they had incorporated 
some of the newer uh, cutting edge technologies in minimally invasive vascular stuff. Our mentors are everything in our lives. And I had some very good guidance. Uh, and one of my mentors had kind of, you know, when, when we were sitting around and talking about, should I do one year or should I do two, two years? And, you know, by the time you're in your mid thirties or early thirties, uh, you know, you can, you know, gosh, do I really want to do another year? Um, or do I just want to finish and finally start making a living? But he had said, no, go do the two years. Uh, you're still young and uh, you'll appreciate the new technologies that you're learning. and It'll prepare you for the rest of your career. Mm-hmm. And he was absolutely right. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, one of those mentors was my dad, but I had other people who were helping me. And so I chose to do the two-year fellowship where I learned some of the, some of the newer cutting edge technologies. And 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 that just allowed me to get the foot in the door back in the late 90s because things have just changed tremendously in the last two and a half decades. If I hadn't done that training, I would have been so far behind. It always allowed me to take the next step and do and take on the next technology and the new developments that were coming in. A vascular surgeon is um is uh, a surgeon who uh, operates and treats diseases of the blood vessels, which would be the arteries, veins, and lymphatics everywhere in the body except the heart and except the brain. The heart surgeon and the cardiologist treat the heart, uh, and the neurosurgeon would treat the stuff inside the brain. So I take care of everything else. Uh, mm. And so that might mean uh, a carotid artery for someone who's had a stroke or an, an aneurysm in the belly um, or blockages in the leg arteries uh, for someone who has gangrene or you know might be losing their leg or has leg pain. And then also I treat uh, disorders of the veins and lymphatics for people who have varicose veins and and leg swelling. And then, I mean, that's the kind of the gamut of what a vascular surgeon treats. Many of us then focus our time and and subspecialize in things. Uh, And my my area of focus is limb salvage. So Mm. the majority of the work, I'd say about 70% of the work I do has to do with the lower extremities, the legs, um, and uh, cleaning out arteries, bypassing arteries, trying to save people's legs. The rest might be an aneurysm in the belly or a carotid artery surgery or something like that. So mm-hmm. all of my patients are are very sick uh, in the sense that they all have chronic disease uh, because it's a constellation of chronic diseases that leads to atherosclerosis. At least 50% are uh-huh. diabetic, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Every single patient who walks in my door has either diabetes or hypertension or hypercholesterolemia or some combination of those things. So atherosclerosis uh, means hardening of the arteries. Athero means artery and sclerosis means hardening. Uh, and that's uh, uh, basically the atherosclerosis, the medical term for the deposition of plaque into the arterial wall. Uh, and as that plaque gets thicker and thicker, uh, it narrows down the opening of the artery and restricts blood flow. And so whatever that artery is supplying is then affected by uh, the blood flow. So uh, atherosclerosis is kind of a slow, indolent, insidious disease. It starts when we're very young, uh, and but it doesn't have impact in our lives until we're older because it's uh, like sludge building up on the inside of a, uh, a pipe. At first, a little bit of sludge isn't going to slow the flow down, but as more and more and more builds up, you kind of reach a critical point where the pipes get clogged up. We used to kind of characterize it as a disease of older people, uh, and that's because that's the ones who get treated. Uh, but it is a disease that starts when we're very young. And I like to talk about this because, uh, you know, in educating people about their lifestyles and how you can make changes, uh, I want them to understand it starts when they're young. And so if they make those changes when they're young, they can affect the impact, the long-term impact. And a lot of this wasn't really taught to me in my fellowship. A lot of this was stuff I learned afterwards. And when I started to learn about lifestyle uh, and its impact on, uh, on chronic diseases, uh, but uh, one thing I learned about it was a, a study done on Korean War 
vets who had been killed in action. Darn near 80% of the, these vets had beginnings of atherosclerosis in their arteries. What, and these were, these were autopsies not on Korean War vets killed in action. Uh, and and the, the surprising thing about that 80% is that the average age was 22 years old. So what we learned from that study is that atherosclerosis is present by the time you're 22. Uh, and, and, it, and of course, these were called what were called fatty streaks in the beginnings, but that's where the disease begins. So it's starting back in our 20s. At that point, that's what we thought. That's in the 1950s, because that's when the Korean War was. And actually, you know, I, I, I like to make this point is that our diet wasn't that bad back then. If you fast forward 70 years now to where we are today, our diet is so much worse as a, as a society than it was then. So uh, if, if they were getting disease in their 20s back then, think about what people are getting today. And, and that has been confirmed uh, in various ways. Uh, there's been some autopsies on prepubescent kids who were killed for one reason or another, and it, they, we're seeing fatty streaks in them. And then I, I learned something from a colleague of mine. She's a maternal fetal medicine specialist, MFM. She's from Houston, and she was giving a lecture one time at something that we were both talking at. And she talked about how they're seeing fatty streaks in utero. So basically, the child, while the woman's pregnant, is getting fatty streaks based on the, the diet of a woman. And this is reflected in what I see in that when I started my practice back in the, uh, in the 90s, the average age of my patients was in the 60s and 70s. Now you fast forward 25 years, and it's not unusual for me to see patients in their uh, 50s uh, and 40s. I've even treated, treated people in their 20s. And I'd say wow. the average age has decreased by nearly a decade. Wow. In just the 25 years I'm practicing, I'd say the average age of my patients is now in their early 60s. I can distinctly remember a 28-year-old who I, who I had to treat. Wow. Uh, and she, uh, you know, she had uh, been afflicted with juvenile diabetes, so wow. she was uh, already behind the eight ball, but she was also very non-compliant in her lifestyle in treating her diabetes. And then wow. she developed uh, hypertension and uh, a constellation of diseases. And before you knew it, at 28, she had... Uh, limb threatening. I remember her very distinctly. This was a decade ago, but limb threatening issues with both, both her hands and her feet. Yeah, I think many people think of these things as a disease that is of that person of that age, but they don't mm -hmm. realize that it started a mm -hmm. long, long time. The building blocks or the foundation of it started a long time ago yeah. uh, in, in our habits and, and the way we treat ourselves when we're younger. By the time they get to me, their yeah. arteries are so bad, uh, you know, lifestyle changes uh, aren't going to make the gangrene go away or the stroke right. go away. And right. so they do need, uh, oftentimes continue to need the, the intervention or treatment that I can provide for them uh, yeah. as an emergency stopgap measure. And I do call it filling, filling holes and putting out fires. And, and, <laughs> but uh, the, that's what I'm doing. And, and so the, then the real change I talk to them about is, you know, start changing your lifestyle very, and very much, very, very central. That is the nutrition. Even my patients, before I operate on them, I tell them if you can change your lifestyle before I operate on you, you're going to be in a better place uh, and, and be better health and have less complications. So mm -hmm. for, for me, making those changes is important uh, at, any, at any age in life. So, you know, I've always been very uh, focused on my, my personal fitness. And, but I had this kind of, uh, uh, same thing that most Americans do, thinking that fitness and health were mostly related to exercise. So for all of my life, I've been a, uh, a big-time runner, weightlifting since I was in, in high school and, and running. You know, I used to run 30 miles a week on a regular basis for many, many years. I've always been very health-conscious. I've maintained a good, healthy weight. And so I had some ideas about what health was, but it was mostly related to fitness. I never had really understood 
the nutrition component of it. There was a, uh, a funny story where uh, I, I took my girls to uh, Cancun every summer for our summer vacation. There had been this kind of period where I had gained a little bit of weight and I took my shirt off in front of my older girl. She was nine at the time. And that's the first time she'd seen me shirtless since the previous summer uh, when we were at the pool or something. And she said, daddy, you're fluffy. Uh, and I love, I love the, uh, honesty of children. You know, she just noticed that, you know, I was 20 or 30 pounds heavier than I had been the previous year. So that kind of got me motivated to get back into shape. I started doing this thing by, uh, Tony Horton called P90X. I did that faithfully for three years. I just was a nut, uh, and, uh, probably part of my obsessive compulsive personality. But one thing that Tony Horton kind of pushed real hard was that he would say that nutrition is 80% of the game. And he, I, I was really surprised that a fitness expert who was in really good shape and doing these really hard workouts was talking about how the workout was only 20% of the deal and, fit, uh, and nutrition was the, uh, the most, the most important impact. And so that kind of got me thinking about more, how important nutrition was. And I did make some changes, but I still was doing kind of a standard American thing. I was doing a high protein, low fat diet. So it was a 40% protein, 40% carbohydrate, 20% fat diet. Even as a physician, didn't understand that all of that protein was really going to waste and wasn't helping me because I wasn't some sort of huge person who needed high protein needs or a big time bodybuilder who's building lots of muscle. Mm -hmm. um, I was a very slight guy who uh, was just working out a lot. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I went with that. that. And so for many years, I went with the kind of high protein lean meat. Uh, and, but I understood the need for carbs uh, as an energy source because I didn't think the protein was an energy source, but, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and then the low fat diet. So I was kind of evolving in my processes and, and then also beginning to think about how nutrition was really more important. Uh, but the, the bigger impact was when, uh, Maya, my wife came into my life, uh, over a decade ago, she was largely a pescatarian. She was always doing a lot of reading and getting information about health. She's very focused on health. Uh, she might even say at one point she was a hypochondriac, but, <laughs> uh, you know, that might be the, the uh, basis for her. But there was a, a, a time about seven or eight years ago where she, you know, the funny thing is we, we, we moved into an apartment high rise that was right next to a Whole Foods hmm. because we thought that's where we're going to get healthy foods. And so I enjoyed the fact that we just walked out the bottom of my high rise and across the street and we were at the, at the Whole Foods because that was awesome. easy to shop there. She uh, one day said, hey, there's this guy coming to speak at Whole Foods and I want you to come. And I was like, oh, really? What? Who? And she said, it's uh, a fireman named Rip Esselstyn. Uh, uh, said, Why would I want to go watch a fireman? And she said, he's going to give a talk on nutrition. And I really, she had really lost me there because a fireman coming to give a talk on nutrition, he's uh, part of a family, the Esselstyn family, and his father wrote a book on how to prevent and reverse heart disease, which uh, basically was a, uh, a recipe for how to work on heart disease from a plant-based standpoint. But anyway, so she took me there and he, he gave a talk which challenged a lot of my current concepts on atherosclerosis and heart disease. He was saying things like, you know, you can prevent this from happening and by the way you eat, and you can even reverse this disease by the way you eat. As a vascular surgeon, I'd never heard that stuff. That wasn't taught to me. I was pretty skeptical when I walked out of there, but it did open my mind to the idea. And I did mm -hmm. do some research, and that's when I went on to finally read something called The China Study which you're obviously well aware of. And I did go and I did read the book, How to Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. And I started to learn about the work of Dean Ornish, which was done well before my fellowship in vascular surgery. And yet none of that was presented to me. He published some of his uh, 
work in the Lancet in 1990, I think it was. And mm-hmm. I did my fellowship in 96, 97, and 98. And that stuff wasn't, you know, despite the fact that he was, I think, times one times 100 top people of the year or something and well-known and, uh, you know, well-recognized for his work, his concepts were not taught to us. So I started to get exposed to that. Being a scientist, the data was there. Uh, the science was there. Uh, and suddenly I realized how important our nutrition is in our overall health, how our, what our diet contributes to chronic disease, especially the chronic diseases that are the risk factors for what I treat, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, hypercholesterolemia, and all of these are preventable to a great extent. I couldn't have that cognitive dissonance where I knew the data, and, but then continued to ignore it. Uh, my wife when being presented with this information, she went, she became plant-based overnight. She was already most of the way there because at that point she was really only eating fish. I did make the conscious decision to do so. And I made a transition over the course of a few months to becoming a whole food plant-based. There's a backstory to this too, is around that time I was applying for life insurance. Uh, as many of you know out there, when you apply for life insurance, especially larger policies, um, they might they require physical and, and blood work. I had become fully plant-based sometime in, a, in December, and I had this blood work drawn in February. The backstory is that I was kind of pre-hypertensive. My blood pressure was always in the 130s over 80s. I was pre-diabetic at the time with a uh, uh, hemoglobin A1C of like six. I had a cholesterol, which was in the uh, 220s, 227, something like that. So I was kind of already on my way to being, you know, getting those chronic diseases that you get around the age of 50 is that that was when it was which is then not uncommon for about one in two americans by the time they're age 50 are on some medication for a chronic disease whether it's diabetes or hypertension or cholesterol or something so i was willing on my way to being one of those people and then when i got my blood drawn for the insurance exam in february uh, and i had my blood pressure done and everything funny thing is here's a doctor around blood pressures every day so i hadn't had my blood pressure tested in a while and it, my blood pressure was normal my <laughs> cholesterol was less than 150 my hemoglobin A1C had gone, dropped down to 5.6. And I attribute that, those changes. I kind of had my own personal test. I had some tests done from six months before and uh, everything had changed. I was a believer just on my own personal uh, experience. I'm of Southeast Asian descent. I've subsequently learned that I've, I'm at higher risk for some of these things, cardiac disease, diabetes, hypertension. These all very, very much in our, our society. And We're seeing that now in Pakistan and India as their diet has become more westernized over the last three decades. Mm. There's an explosion in obesity and type 2 diabetes as well as heart disease. Our incidence of heart disease is around 40% in the United States. And I think their incidence is approaching 52%. 40% of people in the United States succumb to cardiovascular disease. And I think it's about 52% there now. Many of us know what the right thing to do is. I mean, there's still people who smoke knowing it's bad for them. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, most of my patients, if you ask them, they'll tell you that their diet is bad, that they mm. eat too much processed food, that they eat too, too much meat. I use this expression, if, if the only reason to do something the right way was knowing the right thing to do, we'd all do it. But mm-hmm. most of us don't because there's so many other things that impact our choices. When I did finally make that change uh, a few years ago and I became whole food plant-based and I had this agenda at the hospital, I, I work in a smaller size hospital. And they, there was, it was very clear in the doctor's lunch line that I was eating differently. I mean, people would ask me, Hey, why is that? You know, you're skipping the meat. And it was such a small medical community that uh, became very quickly known that Riz has given up eating meat. You know, that's all they cared about. It's not why. Okay. And I would tell them why for my health, I'm a cardiovascular specialist. I'm, right. I'm telling you these things 
the science is there. It shows you this and this and this and this. And if you make these changes, you can have all these improvements, you know, in your hypertension, right. diabetes, and your cholesterol. And it's proven, you know, it's, we got papers and et cetera. And they didn't care about that. It was just Riz, <laughs> uh, Riz's, quit, you know, not, not eating meat anymore. And, and so I was kind of the crazy doctor, you know, like, oh, look at this crazy guy. He just suddenly, you know, quit eating meat. But the funny thing is, is, uh, you know, it, it was, yeah, it's ingest, but, and, and it wasn't a, a, a mean situation either. But, right, uh, but right. now, fast forward several years, and it wasn't long before people were looking to me as the healthy doctor. I think there's that deep down, there's that, their initial response was one way, but then when deep down inside, these other physicians also understood uh, that this is a healthier lifestyle. I alluded to earlier that the, the artery supplies a certain area of the body, and that area of the body is what's affected by the disease. So if you have, and I don't treat the heart, but if you have atherosclerosis in your coronary arteries, uh, then that can cause heart attacks or even death. Okay. Chest pain is a, one of the symptoms that people have. Uh, but it's not the only symptom. People can have feel like just fatigue or they can feel chest pressure or they can feel shortness of breath. They can feel pain radiating to their left arm or their shoulder, pain radiating to their neck. For the carotid arteries, which is a, a very, another common area I treat, uh, TIAs, which are called transient ischemic attacks, are a very common way to people present. And that's a mini stroke in the sense that it's something that where they have some sort of deficit, facial droop, slurred speech, numbness in their fingers, or, or weakness in their arm or hand, uh, and, but that goes away very quickly. They usually recover within uh, a few minutes to a couple hours. And that's what's called a TIA. And that's a bad sign. That's a harbinger of a possible stroke in the future. That's one way people present. Another way people present was actually having a stroke. So what they'll do is they'll have a blockage in the carotid artery and then blood clots form on it. They break off and go to the brain and cause strokes. And the, the type of stroke you have, whether it's your speech or movement or sensation, depends on what part of the brain that blood clot goes to or that plaque. So those are, that's the way uh, strokes present. Uh, and then for uh, the, the thing that I treat the most is lower extremity disease. Uh, and most, one of the, some of the most common presentations are foot wounds, uh, non-healing foot wounds. You know, for people with normal circulation who don't have, you know, diabetes, if you get a cut or a scratch, a bug bite, whatever, those typically heal on their own without much care. Uh, but people who have non-healing wounds um, uh, present with a concern. You know, often that's that's a sign for us to look into whether they have diabetes or do they have peripheral arterial disease or, or atherosclerosis. Wounds are is one way people uh, can present with uh, something called claudication. And claudication is pain in the legs, which is similar to chest pain. When you have blockages in the coronary arteries, you can get chest pain with exertion. Well, in the legs, if you get leg pain with exertion, that's called claudication uh, or vascular angina of the legs. And that's a presentation for people who have blockages. So there's a progression of symptoms that can occur as the blockages get worse. At first, there's no symptoms um, when they're not bad. And then you start to have symptoms with exertion. Uh, and then you might have symptoms at rest, uh, and then, or you might develop wounds. So those are some of the some of the symptoms. There's something that I talk about that's uh, not very well known, but impotence in men is, can be a very uh, significant sign of atherosclerosis. Uh, they say about forty percent of I use the, I quote these numbers because it's, it's easy. Forty percent of men in their forties, fifty percent in their fifties, and sixty percent of men in their sixties have some form of impotence. Oftentimes, that impotence has to do with a problem. Or, or lack of blood flow. 
And so uh, impotence can be a sign that you have atherosclerosis going on. When we have people with disease, and this has to do with flow dynamics and hemodynamics, so in the way blood flows, as you got an, uh, the lumen that's narrowing and narrowing and narrowing, there comes a critical point where suddenly there's not enough flow uh, and impotence occurs. Okay. And so all you have to do is reverse that disease just a little, and you've gotten them back to that point where there's enough flow. You're not necessarily reversing all of the disease. But you're reversing it enough and doing enough uh, that it makes an impact. But there, it's multifactorial with ED. Um, it has to do with vasodilatation, uh, healthier arteries, less oil causing stiffening. So there's, I mean, but also maybe you are reducing the atherosclerotic burden just enough, two or three or four or five percent, uh, to, and you put all those things together and, uh, and you've got better function. When I first saw Forks Over Knives, I was blown away. Uh, you know, when they were talking about you know, addressing three major issues, but there was a myriad of other secondary issues that went away. Oftentimes, you're probably not talking about ED when you're mm -hmm. addressing their issues, but that's just one of the other things that can improve. So my wife, Maya and I, Maya Acosta and I um, uh, do do our, you know, we, I, we teach this stuff to my patients, but we also have wanted to increase our reach, our outreach. And I want to get to people earlier on in life mm. uh, and teach them a better way to live so that they don't end up on my table, uh, my operating table. And I, in a sense, I joke that I'm trying to put myself out of business. Mm. <laughs> and if that were true, and if it happens, that's great. I'll find something else to do. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll retire and, and I'll uh, ride off into the sunset. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so we do, we do a lot of outreach um, and uh, we, Pre-pandemic, we were quite active with uh, potlucks, movie screenings, guest speakers. Um, I do a week, a monthly walk with the doc, uh, which I work with the national organization called Walk with the Duck. And so these are a lot of the things that we did do. And then the pandemic hit and we kind of slowed down, did a lot of Zoom-based activities. I kind of used to joke during the pandemic that I was all Zoomed out because <laughs> we were doing so much Zoom stuff. And yeah. now I call it now in post-pandemic era, I... Uh, is that we're starting to become more active again. But um, my Instagram is, you know, probably my social media where I'm most active. And that's dr underscore riz, R-I-Z underscore Bukhari uh, is my Instagram. Maya, my wife, has a, a very well-respected podcast in the, in the uh, lifestyle community, and that's Healthy Lifestyle Solutions. Um, so I would encourage people to do, uh, go check that out. Lastly, I do have a guide to cardiovascular nutrition. Uh, which it's a PDF, which you can download and uh, bit.ly forward slash join Dr. Riz. You've been listening to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions podcast with your host, Maya Acosta. If you've enjoyed this content, please share with one friend who can benefit. You can also leave us a five-star review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash HLS. This helps us to spread our message. As always, thank you for being a listener.